0: Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you, Can live a better life not just physically but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice this podcast is sponsored by eco physiotherapy where their mission is to educate empower and rehabilitate you back to health without further ado please enjoy the show welcome back to our wonderful listeners Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about supporting you through the stages of the fertility journey. My guest today is Dr. Shannon. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So... I don't know if we've talked about fertility on this podcast as of yet, so I'm really excited. Uh, I know that this could be a struggle for many, many uh, individuals, and so I think it's really important that we bring and shed some light on this topic. But before we dive right in, perhaps we can start off with getting to know you a little bit. Uh, Tell us about you
1: and kind of what got you into working with fertility. Yes, definitely. So, yes, my name is Dr. Shannon Vanderdolen. I am a naturopathic doctor by trade. I have a, I say mostly virtual practice. Probably ninety-five percent of my practice is virtual right now. But I am located in Toronto, Ontario, and I see some people in person. Um, and I'm also a mom, <laughs> which so I'm not always a naturopath I'm a mom. I have a almost three-year-old who keeps me very um, busy, and in some ways, like being her mom is kind of what brought me to the work in fertility. Although I will say that when I think back to, you know, like growing up, I was always like, I remember being in grade seven or something and and learning about genetics in science class and being like super fascinated by the fact that like things are passed on to us by our parents and the, their health is going to influence our health. Um, You know, and I, so I certainly just, I don't know, I kind of think about it, I just like followed my interests and followed my gut all through high school and ultimately studied biomedical science in university. All of my favorite courses in university had something to do with like human reproduction and physiology. And, um, you know, I took a whole course on embryology like the development of an embryo during a pregnancy. Um, So I just did kind of continue to follow my gut. I learned about naturopathic medicine actually when I was in my undergrad. So I didn't grow up um, kind of exposed to more natural healthcare. Um, I mean, I probably took a Flintstones multivitamin as a kid, but that would have been the extent of my, um, natural health, uh, support. I was my, just going to say childhood. the Flintstone vitamins yeah. were like, they tasted like candy.
0: They were so I good. I, I think though. they still
1: exist. I think oh, they, they totally do.
0: Yes, I'm not sure that yes. they're high quality. I just mean no. to say that as a child, <laughs> I used to like eating them like candy.
1: I know. I know. So I definitely either. No, maybe not, but I know my mom definitely gave us those, but for the most part, like when something was up with our health, like we went to see our pediatrician or our family doctor and, you know, we were prescribed medication or, um, you know, that was kind of the support and going through some of my own sort of challenges with my menstrual cycle, having really painful periods, um, you know, in my teens and twenties, and then also like witnessing sort of things that my mom was going through with her health you know, kind of understanding that there's, um, you know, our medical system is limited in sort of what it can uh, do for us. Obviously, you know, I'm in Ontario, in Canada, we have a government funded healthcare system, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And it obviously serves some really important functions. Like if you're having a heart attack, you need to go to the hospital, you or you break your arm, you should be going to the hospital, you don't want to see your naturopath. But, um, you know, there's a limit, they're not, you know, and I remember watching my mom go through these challenges with her health. And, no one was really looking at her as like a whole person with like multiple systems in her body, right? She'd see this specialist and that specialist, um, you know, and that was kind of my experience too, with my menstrual pain and periods is like, I wasn't really offered a lot of choice or option. It was just like, do this or do that. And these are our solutions for you. And, you know, sometimes the solutions and the specialists just weren't helpful. So I learned about naturopathic medicine in my undergrad, the like literal minute I heard about it, I knew in my gut, this is what I wanted to do. I studied, you know, I did my four-year program of naturopathic medical school. And again, at school, I just remember like any lecture that was sort of about fertility or women's health or pregnancy. I just like made sure to not miss those lectures. I really enjoyed it. In my like internship year, I like got so excited when I'd have a patient who was trying to conceive. Um, And when I ultimately started my practice, I mean, I think like a lot of naturopaths were new to practice. You know, we kind of see all the people and we do all the support, you know, digestive health, mental health, skin health, women's health, the whole nine yards. Um, and slowly over time, I started to niche my practice a little bit more towards women's health. I remember when I was thinking about trying to get pregnant for the first time, uh, you know, kind of starting my naturopathic preconception healthcare plan and, you know, taking my prenatal vitamins and supplements and getting on track with my diet. Um, You know, and when my husband and I were like, okay, we're ready to start trying, we tried and we got pregnant our first attempt. And I, I all, I remember subconsciously thinking, oh, that's because I've been doing all the things, you know, and because I'm a naturopath and I'm a healthy person and I've been, um, you know, taking care of myself. I understand my cycle, that type of thing. I was very lucky and blessed and grateful to have a healthy pregnancy. And I now have my daughter Um, you know, fast forward a few months, we decided, well, not a few months, 18 months, we decided to try to get pregnant again, uh, for our second. And it didn't happen right away the first time. And I remember feeling, um, very frustrated. Uh, I remember feeling kind of like overwhelmed, a lot of self blame, like, what am I doing wrong? Um, questioning everything I was doing with like my diet and nutrition and, You know, every time I had like a cup of coffee, I was feeling guilty about it. Or if I decided to have a glass of wine on the weekend, I was feeling guilty because I was just making assumptions that these things maybe weren't good for me. Um, We ultimately did get pregnant. Unfortunately, that uh, we lost that pregnancy. I had a miscarriage, which is its whole own thing that maybe we won't dive in deep today, but um, certainly was a challenge uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and then, yeah, we've, we've kind of been going through our own, what we call a secondary infertility challenge, which is really when you're trying to get pregnant or struggling to get pregnant when you, when you already have a child, that's what we call secondary infertility. And this experience personally has really, I guess, helped me refine my practice further and my focus in fertility care. And, you know, I, I think I certainly knew intellectually what it was like to go through this process. And I could hear from people all the time you know, sort of what it was like to get a negative pregnancy test when you've been trying or, um, you know, to start going to the fertility clinic, to be vulnerable in those experiences. I understood intellectually what that might be like, and I could empathize to a degree, but now that I've had my own experiences of, um, of this journey and I'm now walking it myself, I feel like that's really helped me, um, be a better, not doctor. I like to think I'm more, I really get it now what people are going through and, um, you know, now my focus, I would say is very much focused in fertility care. And I just really more than ever see the value of being proactive, being um, holistic in our view to support our health when we're when we're trying to get pregnant.
0: Well, thank you for, you know, being vulnerable to share your, you know, personal journey. And I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, I, you know, I kind of, I'm thinking to myself like when I first started out in pelvic health it was very similar like I could um intellectually empathize with certain aspects but it wasn't until I went through my own pregnancy and my own postpartum recovery and having to get over incontinence myself and like have to deal with pelvic health issues that like I could understand now at a different level the importance Of what I'm doing and how I'm supporting people uh, along in their, you know, uh, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey. So, uh, you know, thank you for, you know, sharing your experience. Because I think once we've gone, you know, when we've gone through an experience, you know, there are certain things that, that adds even extra value toward. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit, maybe more like general kind of, epidemiology or prevalence, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like how common are fertility struggles? Because I, you know, there's probably individuals who are struggling, who think it's just them. Mm
1: -hmm. You know what
0: I mean? Like you feel alone. Maybe your friends are all getting pregnant, but you're having a really hard time, you know, like it can feel very isolating and scary. So I'm, I just would, I'm curious
1: about, you know, how Prevalent is this actually? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you bring up a lot of good points about how prevalent it is and how prevalent we might think it is as individuals. So, uh, statistically speaking, about one in six couples will struggle to get pregnant in Canada. Um, Those stats obviously vary, like in different countries. I think in the United States, they say it's one in eight, Um, it's a little bit more prevalent, it seems, in Canada. And essentially what that means, they, I mean, the definition of infertility formally is when you um, have not had success in getting pregnant after a certain period of time of trying to get pregnant. And that period of time depends on your age as a woman. So, or as a person with ovaries and eggs. So if you're um, over the age of 35, they kind of diagnose you or determine that you are dealing with infertility when you've been Uh, unsuccessful at getting pregnant after six months of trying and if you're under the age of 35 uh, they let you go a little longer they let you try for 12 months before they'll say that you um, are dealing with infertility and then I mentioned secondary infertility earlier it seemed that this is like just as prevalent or just as common as primary infertility which is you know, when you're struggling to get pregnant for the first time. Secondary infertility is when you're struggling to conceive for like a second or third or subsequent child after already um, having a child. And it seems that that might be just as common or potentially even a little bit more common than primary infertility. And the reason cited for that is largely age. So like, you know, obviously people are younger when they're getting pregnant with their first child, and then they're going to be a little bit older when they are getting pregnant with their uh, second or third or fourth child. So, Um, that's kind of the main reason why we think secondary infertility might be a bit more common. Um, but you're absolutely right in saying we might feel really alone in it, despite it actually being pretty common. And I think it's because it's something no one talks about, or there's a big stigma associated with it, that we're not, um, you know, likely to share this openly, maybe with, um, you know, the public certainly, or friends or family, um because there's a stigma associated with it. Like what, what must be wrong with you if you can't get pregnant. Right. And this is something that we should be able to, you know, or, you know, people might feel like it should be something that should come naturally to you. And this kind of almost like our motherly instincts start when we, you know, before we even get pregnant. Um, And another kind of statistic note or epidemiological note on this is kind of where infertility sort of comes from originates from It's estimated that about 30 to 40% of the time when a couple, you know, has been trying and unsuccessful, um, it's related to female factor infertility. So something related to the the female partner's health. So potentially, you know, struggles with ovulation or other, you know, conditions like endometriosis that that might be affecting their uh, success in getting pregnant. About 30 to 40% of the time it's considered male factor infertility. So related to Sperm health, uh, sperm motility, you know, potentially troubles with sperm transport. And then the remaining 30 to 40% of the time is actually mixed factor or what we call idiopathic, which in medicine just means we don't know. So that's often unexplained infertility. So a couple might have tests and investigations. And at the end of the day, the doctors will say, you know, we have no reason that we can identify here why you guys have not been able to get pregnant yet.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that piece up because I was watching a documentary called The Connection. Mm -hmm. And it talks about, it's a documentary that follows the lives of seven different people. One of which is, uh, I believe, a medical doctor who was having fertility. And the whole premise behind this documentary was talking about the stress and relaxation response and actually the physiology, like how it actually works in the body. And so they were also talking about in context, you know, the stress and relaxation response as it relates to fertility. And uh, so it's interesting that you say idiopathic, because it makes it, you know, obviously when because we we get this in physiotherapy as well, especially in pelvic health, like syndromes, right? Diagnosis of exclusion. We've excluded all the organic structural possibilities. So therefore we'll just name the problem after, you know, where the pain's located or like the organ that is involved with that doesn't actually inform anything about the reason why it's sort of happening um but there are reasons they just now leave the realm of kind of biomedicine per se and start moving into that holistic realm that we're a whole body we have a mind and a body that are connected and we have a soul and a spirit and we have an environment that we interact with and people and their social circumstances there could be traumas there could be All of these other factors uh, that have physiological consequences that just don't show up in tests, however, are real. And there's a reason, right? It's just that we're not
1: asking perhaps maybe the right questions. Totally. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, that speaks to also you know, I have a bunch of thoughts on what you just said, but it kind of speaks to, yeah, like our limitations to in what we can diagnose and that, you know, I often say like, we don't know what we don't know. So there's also an element of like, you're absolutely right. There there probably is a cause or a reason. It's just a matter of like, yeah, what can actually be measured, tested and looked at objectively, right? Like that's, I think sometimes the, the tr- struggle we run into with like our more conventional medical fertility assessment and treatment is like, we rely on objective data, we rely on lab values and ultrasound results and imaging and and semen analysis, right, to make our diagnosis and our um, treatment plan, right. And I think you're absolutely right in saying like, someone's history, whether yeah, it's like, their past experiences, their trauma, their Etc. 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 Like you know, I mean, anything that informed who they are, you know, at that moment in time, um, can absolutely be affecting someone's fertility. You know, you spoke specifically about stress, which I think is something that gets so wrapped up in fertility. Is that it's obviously stressful <laughs> when you like want to be pregnant and you are not pregnant. Uh, you obviously feel stressed about that uh, going through fertility treatment and like working with a fertility clinic and having that assessment is stressful, you know, like going to the clinic every morning at 6am is physically and emotionally and and mentally stressful, um, as an example. So it's, you know, it's sometimes we talk with stress and fertility. It's like the chicken or the egg, right? Like, are you stressed because you're trying to get pregnant and you're not successful yet? Or like, did stress contribute to, to why maybe you're not pregnant? Um, you know, even in a very simplistic way, when we think about stress, whether it's mental, emotional, historical trauma, physical stress, you know, when our body is perceiving stress, I think it's also a protective mechanism to say, maybe now is not a good time for her to get pregnant, right? Like, our body is perceiving that maybe our environment is chaos, you know, for whatever reason. And uh, even if it's not, you know, even if it's just like, life is pretty much all good, but I'm dealing with some stuff and, or, you know, I'm having a hard time. Our body may, may try to protect us in that way of saying, you know, maybe now is not the best time to bring a child into the world because that's stressful too. Um, and so, it, you know, it might be restricting us from conceiving and, and that's not something we can measure on a lot of tests for yeah. sure.
0: And I just wanted to highlight because the nervous system is like my jam.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, That this is, you know, when we talk about, like, threat and safety from a physiological, neurological perspective, like, it's not a cognitive thing. So, so yes, there's, like, the kind of conscious stress that we're sort of aware of, but what we really sometimes miss, because we're not, we're never taught this from, like, a body intelligence perspective, is, like, our body's always sending us cues But when our body feels threatened in our nervous system, it's a very primitive response. It's Mm -hmm. unconscious. And oftentimes we won't even be consciously aware of what is specifically triggering the nervous system to feel stressed. So I'm talking about stress in the body, right? Versus like consciously like, oh, I have a deadline to hit. That's a different kind of stress that I mean. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to highlight that piece as well, that, cause you were saying like, yeah, from a physiological and evolutionary perspective, if our nervous system did teams that there's a threat in the environment, it's probably not a good idea to get, you know, into get, you know, libido might not be there. And, you know, conception may not be there because of a lack of safety. Um, it's not that it's somebody's like, okay, it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's no blame here. There's something that the nervous system is picking up from a self-protective or self-preservation from a survival perspective that we just don't spend the time to uncover from the body cues. And again, it could be related to a past trauma or a past negative experience and the way that those experiences are coded in the primitive brain. We may not be aware of. Right. So it may seem like we're getting stressed about something that we don't know what we're getting stressed about. But there's usually, if you start going down a little bit deeper, there usually is a reason for the stress related to a cue. So I just wanted to be like, people aren't consciously like getting into stressful environments on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe sometimes we are, and sometimes we're not aware that we're actually stressed in a particular environment. So I just wanted to take away some of the, you know, I want to identify that this doesn't need to be a blame game that in fact, Absolutely. our nervous system is actually trying to just do its job in protecting us because it literally thinks a lion is about to eat you. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe having a baby right now in that context is not a great idea. And so um, this is where I think, you know, looking at past history can be really helpful to highlight perhaps stressors or triggers or cues in the environment that the person may not even be consciously aware that it's causing physiological
1: stress versus psychological stress totally yeah I resonate with all of that and it's that's not part of our like conventional fertility care (laughs) and um and I think sometimes actually the conversation kind of speaking about like blame is sometimes someone will say well like how are you doing with your stress management and you're like well frig like I don't know how I'm doing because that's like an overwhelming thing to, to take on too. And yeah, like, unless you have the right tools to explore that safely with the right people and, and unpack all of that, then, um, you're right to say that then a lot of people might place blame on it. I'm not pregnant yet because I'm so stressed and I don't know how to deal with my stress. I don't know how to cope with this, or I don't even know where it's coming from. And like, there's, yeah. And it's, you know, a sick, a cycle for sure. That, that blame cycle for sure.
0: Or negative or can go into a negative cycle when totally. really it's a self-protecting, self-preserving, surviving, like it's there of, of like a higher purpose that mm-hmm. we just don't happen to, we're just not consciously aware of. And so, you know, sometimes like When things are happening that we're not really sure why, you know, a multidisciplinary sometimes approach can be really, really helpful. Or just even expanding your ability to think about what might be some of the other factors. And then, therefore, who might be the best person for me to just dive into to see like, Mm -hmm. are there other emotional and, you know, mental or trauma pieces that are involved? Totally from a physiological perspective.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: So that, sorry, that, that I, I get a <laughs> little bar. and I'm like, sidebar. <laughs> um, I want to talk about your course, your fertility course. And I just, before we kind of dive in, cause we're going to talk about like what the pillars are and how you, you know, how you particularly, um, Help support individuals, but I want to just build context for the conversation. Is this course just for individuals that are struggling with fertility, or is it for people who are trying to get pregnant and do get pregnant? So I just want to build context for, um, like, do you have to be struggling with fertility for this
1: course to be useful? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, my 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 course, my program is called Fertility Foundations. And it's called that because I think the course really helps build the foundation of your health with respect to trying to get pregnant. So definitely it's, I would say it's a very useful program for someone who is struggling to get pregnant or maybe has been trying for a few months or a few cycles and not had luck yet. I think it's also, and I, you know, we don't always work in the world of being proactive, but I would say this is like a really awesome program to consider for someone who hasn't even started trying yet, right? Or is about to start trying to kind of build these foundational pieces in to maybe gain a bit of traction before you're actually starting to get pregnant. Um, You know, the program was kind of built to help you really understand, um, you know, understand your body, understand your cycle. So again, that's going to be really useful for someone who's about to try to get pregnant or who's still maybe trying on their own or maybe someone who's like started working with a fertility clinic, doing something called cycle monitoring or time to intercourse. And we can talk about it later if we need to, um, you know, helping you understand sort of the foundations of nutrition and lifestyle and like making sure you're having like a thorough assessment done, you know, basically empowering you to like be walking that fertility journey with confidence. It's something that's like, this is kind of a program that I wish and maybe one day I will, but I would like, I think should be taught to every individual, right? It's like, I feel like when we're in health class in, in elementary school and middle school, we're taught like, don't have sex, you might get pregnant or get an STI, like use condoms, go on the birth control pill. That's like the extent of our reproductive conversation. And then unless you've had like a parent or someone who's, you know, close with you sort of go through this, this stuff with you, you know, we might fast forward to your twenties or thirties or forties and you're like, okay, I'm ready to start trying to get pregnant. And you know, well now what, like, I don't even understand what, what, when I'm ovulating, or what my body is telling me, you know, and I guess that's compounded sometimes when you're like on birth control or on like a birth control pill or have an IUD for many years, as many, many women are like our cycles, our body isn't necessarily able to give us those like clues and signs and symptoms that something might be up. So, um, Yeah. So to backtrack, yes, this course is really for, I would say for anyone who's either thinking about or starting to try to get pregnant and certainly would be useful for people on any place on that journey, whether you're like, yeah, tried for three cycles and it hasn't worked and you're starting to feel a little antsy or frustrated, understandably, or if you're like, I'm doing IVF next month and I want to make sure I'm like doing everything I can to support my health so that that procedure goes as well as possible and kind of everything in between. Amazing.
0: Can we talk about, you know, your key, like, let's talk about the modules because that'll Mm -hmm. help us under, I think that'll help build context for what actually, like, what are some really important things that we should know about that, like, we don't get taught?
1: Yeah. So the first module is really about, like, understanding your menstrual cycle. And I think this is so, so, so key because, I mean, you... uh, we like I said, we just weren't taught this, and it. I think it's helpful to understand. Certainly, like, will help you get pregnant. And when you understand your cycle, understanding, and I think we're gonna talk about this in a bit. Like, you actually can't get pregnant all month. You can't get pregnant all cycle. So, understanding when in your cycle you actually can have success in conceiving um, helps you be you know a little more strategic about having intercourse if you want to be more strategic. Um, I also think this is just yeah like fundamental foundational information that all people should know about their body. So I, I really geek out on this stuff. And it's also helpful to understand what we're expecting. I use like air quotes to be normal, um, or optimal, because then if your cycle doesn't look like that, you know, if your cycle is sort of out of the realm of normal, or there's some red flag symptoms, your your cycle sort of telling you, then you're not going to wait six months or 12 months to to talk to a doctor about it, right? Like you maybe have some awareness of like, Oh, actually this isn't normal. And maybe I should be talking to someone about this sooner because maybe I have a condition. I'll use examples like endometriosis or PCOS that will actually make it really hard for me to get pregnant. So I don't want to wait six months or 12 months to flounder and try when actually my cycles aren't regular or I'm having excruciating pain. um, I can get help sooner. So understanding your cycle, I think is really key. Um, module two is about nutrition. So understanding how our food and our diet influence our fertility, um, not just for the worst. Cause I'm, trying to be the type of person that's not just like, don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat that. Cause that's not fun. So really focusing on like what to include more of in your diet, how to nourish your body, fuel your body. We talk a lot in that module about like calming down that fight or flight response through nutrition and making sure your body understands that like you're fueled and safe Uh, The third module is about lifestyle. So that um, module, we do touch a little bit on like stress and stress management. We talk about um, sleep. We talk about, you know, like alcohol and drug use and that type of thing. So just understanding how those things can influence our fertility. And then the last module is about a fertility assessment. So again, like understanding what tests to maybe ask for in certain situations or what tests we might wanna make sure our lab values, I guess we might wanna make sure are like in an optimal range to support our fertility. And essentially here we're looking at not just like things that might identify concerns with fertility, but also thinking about positive pregnancy outcomes and postpartum. So like iron is a really basic example where if you're iron deficient prior to getting pregnant, you're probably going to become very anemic in your pregnancy, which doesn't feel great. And then you're at a higher risk of developing postpartum depression after you've had your baby. So something as simple as like optimizing your iron before you conceive makes, you know, it less likely for you to become anemic and then reduces our chances of experiencing postpartum depression. So those are the four core modules. And then we have two bonus modules in its current iteration. One is about male fertility and sperm health. And then the second one is about, um, you know, what to do once you're actually pregnant because that also hopefully will happen for you after going through the course as you actually do conceive. And then it's always, you know, you're standing there with your positive pregnancy test in your hand and then like, okay, now what do I do? So chatting through those first uh, steps of like who to connect with, you're building your healthcare team, which includes, you know, pelvic physio and, um, you know, managing kind of the first trimester, not so nice symptoms.
0: Yes. Really helpful to kind of have some guidance once the thing actually happens. You're like, great, I did all this work. And now what am I supposed to like, what should I be doing? Uh, Really helpful to, you know, talk about. So I want to now dive a little deeper into sort of the menstrual cycles. And Mm -hmm. so my first question is
1: when can you actually get pregnant? Mm -hmm. This is a great question. So I I sometimes like start by saying like we need to figure out if and when in your cycle you're ovulating. So ovulation is the process where your ovary is releasing a mature egg that can then ultimately be fertilized by a sperm cell. And why we want to understand when you're ovulating is because you can only get pregnant if you've had intercourse in the five days before ovulation and maybe the day of and day after ovulation. So it's like a seven day window of opportunity. And that makes an assumption on the sperm health benefit. It assumes that those five days, it's like if sperm are really healthy, then they can survive inside a female reproductive tract for up to five days. But let's say even, you know, if we're giving a little benefit of the doubt, maybe it's more like three days or two days. So again, really understanding when in your cycle you're ovulating allows you to time intercourse appropriately um, to allow for fertilization to occur. There's like a million and one steps that have to occur after that for you to actually then get your positive pregnancy test a few weeks later, but we need to at minimum make sure sperm and egg are in the same place at the same time. So yeah, it's like a seven day window, five days before ovulation, day of, and day after ovulation.
0: Okay. Cause it sure sounded like in health class that you can give <laughs> any time.
1: I know. Right. And this is also, yeah, like, again, kind of speaking to like, this is just useful information to know. Because it can also be, you know, we sometimes we call this the fertility awareness method of like tracking your cycle, understanding your cycle. You can use this to both help you get pregnant, but also to help you avoid pregnancy, right? So, you know, it's not a 100% foolproof method of contraception, but really understanding your cycle also allows a little bit of freedom on the other end to say, if I don't want to get pregnant, I should avoid having unprotected intercourse in that same window.
0: Okay. Next question. (laughs) menstrual apps.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How yeah. good are they at predicting ovulation?
1: They are, they are limited. There's actually been a study done looking at menstrual cycle tracking apps and it kind of scored them based on, you know, how accurate they were and um, how affected they were. I kind of tell people, I mean, I've had, I've had patients over the years who are like, when I ask about their cycle, they're like, let me pull out my paper agenda, you know, (laughs) pulling it out and, you know, tracking when they had their period on paper and that's fine. But like, most of us are probably going to use an app. Like, I think that's still a really good tool to use to track your cycles and track your ovulation. But with that said, yeah, they're limited. Most of the time they're going to predict that you ovulate on day 14, because that is average but certainly not everyone ovulates on day 14. So I feel like they get smarter the more information you input into them, right? And as you have more and more menstrual cycles and as you're tracking things in those apps, they're gonna learn a little bit more about your body. So I think um, it's a useful tool to use as a place to like, how is your tracking information? But I want you to trust your body and what your body is telling you over what your app is telling you. So I think as a starting point, it's good. It, it, usually the app will help identify your, that window of opportunity. Often it's called a fertile window. I kind of cringe at that term, but um, that kind of five days before, day of, day after ovulation, it will like highlight that in the calendar to say, you know, this is kind of the time that you could get pregnant, but it doesn't know for sure when you're ovulating unless you're giving it more data and information to help it know for sure that you're ovulating.
0: Follow-up question.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the app,
0: let's say you're really good. You're inputting a lot of information. You've been tracking for a while. What I wonder is, like, can your ovulation be impacted by outside factors in such that if you are regularly at said date, but then something happens, uh, can that ovulation date or predicted ovulation date change, despite having consistent, you know, um, consistent dates put out, like, you know, yes, my body seems to be in alignment with my app. And then like, is it possible that like, it can change without the app picking up on
1: that? Totally. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So for sure. And I would say it's very uncommon that someone will tell me that they have a like, exactly the same length cycle every single cycle right often it is a little bit of a fluctuation sometimes it's just by like a day or two but some people often people will tell me they have a range right so they'll be like my cycles range from like 27 to 30 days and that's very normal that's not irregular that's very average and regular um but then of course then what we anticipate is actually happening is your ovulation is shifting by that you know that plus or minus 2 or 3 days right so yes you you might typically let's say ovulate on day 12 but some cycles it might be day 14 or day 15 because yes absolutely outside factors can influence um our our ovulation i mean again coming back to that like stress piece i would say i sometimes describe like for sure mental emotional stress like i'm sure a lot of people have had an experience of like my period came a weekly on the month that i had this like insane project i was working on that was really, really overwhelming for me. Um, often this will happen with travel, like time zone change. Um, it's been reported recently, even things like vaccinations are causing people's ovulation to shift temporarily, right? And I think that's just really our body, or if we're sick, it might be another example, like our immune system has been activated. Our our reproductive system is like, oh, something something's up, you know, like maybe she's sick or maybe there's some sort of virus in the environment maybe I shouldn't ovulate right now. So again, I think it's a protective mechanism in some ways um, or precisely a protective mechanism. So yes, absolutely. External factors can influence our ovulation. And so we might anticipate that yes, our app can be helpful to some degree, but it's not going to be able to anticipate those changes, Um, you know, and there are some contraceptive tools that are like linked to apps. So Um, you know, basal body temperature thermometers, for example, that are linked up to an app that have been, I don't know if by Health Canada or by like the FDA, but in certain jurisdictions have been approved as contraceptive devices. Um, So similar to like an IUD or a birth control pill, you know, these are, have have actually been effective to a certain degree at preventing pregnancy. So, um, you know, those things exist, but I would say on its own, we don't want to rely on our app solely we still want to listen to our body understand sort of what's going on body intelligence body intelligence it's the new our bodies are so smart they're so smart and they tell us things if we listen all
0: the time Mm -hmm. all the time that's like that's my that's my jam uh nutrition so Mm -hmm. i mean from a higher level perspective, I mean, one can conceive that eating well would be good if you're trying to conceive and, you know, do things, but on a more like low, you know, coming down from the high view of like, yes, nutrition is important. Like,
1: why is it actually important? Mm-hmm. And you're totally right. Like, I think it's pretty obvious that eating well is probably going to support our fertility. Um why is it important? That's yeah. Like there's so many places to go there. I think like from one standpoint, I look at, you know, what we eat before we get pregnant and like early in pregnancy, um, is influencing at a cellular genetic DNA level, like the health of our eggs, right. As as women or the health of a sperm cell. Right. And ultimately an egg cell and a sperm cell are like two sets of genetic information that fuse and merge. And it's like the blueprint is sometimes how I describe of like how to build a baby, how to build another human being. Um, So there's this whole concept of epigenetics, which I'm sure is a term you've heard, which is, yeah, kind of how our environment, our nutrition, the things we're exposed to are going to influence our genetic information. So at that very, like, I'm going to say basic, but profound foundational level, you know, eating well, eating healthfully, um, avoiding things that are damaging to our DNA uh, is going to set the stage and the foundation of your child's health quite literally for the rest of their life. So that can feel like a very profound, overwhelming responsibility, or like a really wonderful privilege, right? That if I am making modifications and trying to, to, to do things as best as I can, or as I know how to, or as resources allow me to, um, I'm, I'm influencing the health of my child forever and, and actually, end their children, which again is a profound responsibility. Um, we also know that, yeah, like certain nutritional factors can reduce our risk of infertility. So for example, like eating trans fats in our diet, which are found in a lot of processed and refined foods, increase our risk of infertility by 50%, I think is the, the rough stat there. So, you know, something like you know, increasing the chances of us conceiving by eating a healthy diet and or reducing the amount of time that we'll take is something we can do through our nutrition, you know, our pregnancy outcomes, you know, so reducing our risk of things like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia are going to be directly influenced through our nutrition and through our diet. And then certainly thinking, yeah, about like postpartum health and wellness. Um, so yeah, I think there's so many benefits to eating well. And I think what why I thought this was a really important thing to create, you know, a module in a course about is because there's also a lot of misinformation. And I think what I see on the internet is like people saying like, you need to be eating gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, soy-free, joy-free sometimes what I call it to get pregnant. Right. And I think that's a little bit fear-mongery uh, because the reality is I don't think you need to be perfect with everything to get pregnant. Um, or to have a healthy pregnancy or to support your child's health. Um, But yeah, like understanding kind of what the research does suggest, what the research does show, and then building something that's like sustainable and realistic is really what we, what we talk about.
0: I always try to bring it back to the nervous system and create Mm -hmm. a sense of physiological safety. Mm -hmm. Different than psychological. I'm talking about like actual physiology. And so when you say like avoiding this and voiding that sometimes like the question I wonder, or my curiosity goes to what is driving that behavior, right? Like needing to be perfect with the food. I I wonder if behind that is a sense of fear, Mm -hmm. right? And then with fear and trying really hard to be perfect, creates its own physiological stress yes
1: totally and totally. then I, I mean yeah sorry go ahead sure. I, <laughs> I feel like we're so excited um yes like absolutely i when you talk about physiological safety we do talk like i talk about this a lot um you know and there's lots of words to describe this like i often talk about like blood sugar stability right like when when we eat we have a uh you know a insulin response a blood sugar response to food which um, you know, is energy production in our body? So, when we have what we, our body might view as like energy scarcity, right? Like, our body is going to, um, again, primitive mechanism is going to, per- um, what's the word I'm looking for? Prioritize like safety and like preservation for you over growth and reproduction, right? So, it's going to say, like, we need to keep her alive and her cellular processes running and, make sure that she has enough to like stay upright and stay alert and function in the world today, we're not going to prioritize growth and reproduction. So our body is going to prioritize nutrition and nutrients and fuel and calories and all everything to, to keeping you functioning. Right. And that's not something that doesn't mean you're actually starving yourself. That's sometimes what I tell people, like it doesn't mean you're not eating or not fueling, but it can just be like how our body is utilizing what we're eating the frequency of what we're eating, the composition of what we're eating, can our body utilize that as fuel? Is it sufficient for our needs? And can can we kind of give our our body signaling to say, there's enough here for you and for you to get pregnant, to to reproduce, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it totally comes back to that safety standpoint and that nervous system um, signaling for sure within the body
0: and eating regularly and fueling enough, right? Because, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll explain to my clients. And I mean, I do this in the context of, you know, pain and health and wellness from overall, mm-hmm. but when, when we, you know, pay attention to our body and then act in accordance with our body, we tell the body that it matters, right. That yeah. our body is important. And so sometimes I'll even talk to my clients about like eating at relatively similar kind of intervals, because if you're going 18 hours without eating and then you eat a little bit, and then next time you eat eight hours later, then you eat, you know, 10 hours later, or now you're having two meals. It's very difficult for the nervous system to like, right. Our autonomic, our automatic system likes patterns. And so when Mm. it's irregular, the body actually doesn't know when it's getting food or fuel. And so it's going to conserve, right? And if we're trying to say, hey, I want to grow a baby, but the body's like, I don't know when you're going to fuel me next. So I'm not going to dedicate any energy toward this reproduction because again, as you said, like you as the person first needs to survive, right? So even simple things of like eating more regularly and fueling enough for the body to know, hey, like, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. So you can now dedicate some energy toward actually
1: growing a human. hundred percent. Yeah. It's like you sit in my patient visits and hear what I say to people too. So yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a hundred percent. Yeah. Things like simple things too, like, yeah, eating breakfast in the morning or yeah, like, yeah, eating predictably throughout the day. I, uh, I often say our body loves like routine and schedule and it, it likes to know what to predict. Um, you know, there's a lot of trendy diets right now, like, the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting and all of this stuff too. And, you know, I'm not anti-keto or anti-fasting or any of those things, but I think there's a time and place for them. And they, and not everyone responds the same way to those uh, dietary strategies. And I think in general, big general, you know, it's fasting and being on a ketogenic diet and these kind of restrictive diets. And I guess maybe that's where being like gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, soy-free, blah, blah, blah grinds like gears a little bit because those are it's a lot of restriction and then we run the risk of like under fueling under eating under nourishing which is not great for us in so many in so many ways right beyond our fertility but just our, just like our general well-being and our mental health and our energy and and so many things so yeah I'm I'm a big proponent of that it's just
0: I could nerd out with you about this for like yes a- a number, we one. Well. but I just wanted to say <laughs> that, like, this is just like having conversations like this. Just continuously reaffirms to me the importance of body intelligence. Because if you, mm. if we learned actually how to listen to our bodies, we would begin to learn the cues, or we could, on you know, we could tap into our intuition about what our body is asking for and what it actually needs. And what really works well for us, because you're right, intermittent fasting, keto, like eating those things are not bad in and of themselves. They're just not for everybody. Right. And so trying to force yourself to fit into a particular thing that's very restrictive without actually being conscious about what, what, how, how, and what your body's telling you, that's where the danger comes in. I think Is mm-hmm. the, the lack of connection to our body to know like, okay, is this right for me? And mm-hmm. how am I responding to this? So that's where I feel like that's an important piece. Totally. Which ties then also into like lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. So just briefly, like what are some keys or conversations around lifestyle? Yeah.
1: So yeah, like, like I, um, I mentioned the, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about the stress component and so maybe we won't dive too much there other than, you know, I am often encouraging people that like, I don't know. I think we could all, we could all be addressing stress. So to your point, it's not always like the obvious things that cause us stress. We have, we have stuff right in our bodies, in our past, in our history, our beliefs about ourselves, our beliefs about the world. And I think those are all worth exploring. So, um, having some tools, we talk about, you know, things you can do at home, but maybe working with other practitioners, therapists, et cetera, et cetera, um, to, to learn more and address those things. So, we, we, again, we could probably talk for like an hour about stress and, and all of that. So I won't, I won't go won't into go too much there. detail. We won't go there. We can another time. Um, and then, yeah, like thinking about um, alcohol, that's a big topic we, we kind of t- touch on with, with trying to conceive. And, you know, I sometimes say like, the data here is like constantly evolving. So even more recently, there's been updated research that suggests like maybe alcohol isn't as huge of a deal as we used to think it was when it comes to fertility, so again, and there's like a lot of guilt associated with it, or people will be looking at their cycle and be like, well, I'll drink before I ovulate, but I won't drink after I ovulate because I could be pregnant. And I think t- to take a few steps back, I mean, our, our eggs and our um, sperm for men are maturing over a span of about three months, so i say about a hundred days. And so maybe that like the timing in your cycle sure is relevant but it's also like even the drinks you're having before you're ovulating that cycle are maybe affecting like subsequent um eggs and embryos that may come in the future um but yeah i think the kind of key here is maybe you don't need to abstain 100 but it is a, a worthwhile thing kind of the summary is maybe social drinking so they define that in the research as like less than seven drinks per week no more than one or two per sitting is probably not a major factor in contributing to infertility. Some of the research looking at more like IVF outcomes suggest otherwise that even one drink in a cycle can reduce someone's chances of conceiving. So my guidance here is more like taking a step back, looking at how much alcohol you're, you are consuming. Um, and then deciding, you know, do you need to be making modifications to that? So maybe it's not the frequency, but maybe it's the volume, right? If you're just drinking on like a Friday night, but you're having six glasses of wine, maybe that's a problem. Could you have one or two? And that's maybe not an issue. Or are you having two glasses of wine every night? Maybe that's something worth talking about. Um, and, you know, and ultimately when it comes down to it, there's a no amount of alcohol that's been determined to be safe for sure in pregnancy. So I think, but sometimes where we come at it too is, is like reducing our consumption over time. Um, yeah, so it's, 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 the conversation there is really just about like looking at the evidence and looking at the research as opposed to, to maybe having a lot of guilt and shame about having a drink. I think that's another thing with like social pressure is like if someone knows you're trying to get pregnant and then you're having a glass of wine, they may be like, oh, maybe that's why she's not pregnant, um, which is like, you know, fueling that shame and blame all over the place.
0: Yeah. So then the module on the fertility assessment, you know, what, what's kind of included in there? Like, are you actually um, like talking about like what norm values are within labs or just talking more specifically about like what tests to get done?
1: Yeah. I, I really view this, um, this discussion as like a place to be like, to help people feel empowered um, and to be able to access information, right, about their health and about their fertility. There are a lot of things with our fertility that, um, you know, lab tests maybe don't matter, as we've <laughs> talked about, that the objective data isn't the only data that's important. Um, but there's also things where, like, we might not have symptoms or we might not have a physical experience of something, but it might show up on our blood work as being a problem. So I think there's definitely utility for doing some lab testing. Coming back to, to like, um, W- how it's funded, right? So we talked about like, I'm not um, against our government funded healthcare system. It obviously is so, so important, but I think they're really relying from like a public health standpoint of like, we don't have to do a fertility assessment for all people. Like we can just narrow it down to do it for people who really need it. And I think what happens there is like, some people will get, um, yeah, they're gonna be trying to conceive for all this time when like, had we done a simple blood test or an ultrasound six months ago, we might've identified something that we could have addressed sooner, right? That um, is like reducing your, um, what we call social burden of infertility, right? Like the, the struggle mentally, the yeah, like all the things that come with, with not um, having success, getting pregnant. So yeah, essentially like going through sort of what I would determine is like basic preconception blood work. So again, like making sure all these metrics are in optimal range prior to getting pregnant to support not only just your capacity to get pregnant, but stay pregnant, have a healthy pregnancy and thinking about healthy postpartum. So my example there was talking about like iron, but that might also extend to like your cholesterol levels and blood sugar. And so again, it's just kind of a place where like, if you haven't had blood work done in a while, which a lot of people with like the pandemic have delayed their, you know, annual checkups, it's worth maybe having a discussion with your doctor. Just be like, I just want to get some like general blood work done. So kind of going through what that looks like. And then maybe, additional tests that you might ask for based on certain symptoms that maybe you now understand about your body because you've been tracking your cycle and understand. So for example, if you have really irregular cycles, there's a few reasons why that might be. And maybe it's worth testing these specific hormones or these specific markers in your body to determine if those are elevated or too low or not optimal that might be contributing to those irregular cycles. And Ultimately, what an irregular cycle means is regular ovulation, right? So if we can regulate your cycle, we regulate your ovulation, we increase your chances of getting pregnant. Um, So yeah, kind of just going through what those tests are and then giving you the language that you can talk to your healthcare provider about it. Because I think that's sometimes what happens is we go to our doctor and we're like, I think I'm going to start to try to get pregnant or I've been trying to get pregnant for a couple months. You know, are there any tests I can do? And the doctor might say, and this is not to throw all doctors under the bus, um, but the doctor might say, no, just come back um, and let me know when you've been trying for 12 months and then we'll run to the test then. So I think the conversation could be a little different to say, I've been noticing this about my cycle and I'm wondering if we could test this to identify if it's that, you know, and that's a very different conversation. And, and um, you know, I, unfortunately we shouldn't have to always be advocating and, and pressuring for our health. But I think when you go into those visits informed, empowered, you're having a specific ask, then you're more likely to be able to access that information. So that's kind of, yeah, like accessing these tests through our conventional healthcare system. But if that's not an option, I mean, certainly working with practitioners outside of the conventional healthcare system. So a shameless plug for naturopathic doctors is, you know, we're able to run those tests for you and access that blood work. Um, You know, it's not covered from a financial standpoint, from the government plan, but it's, you know, you have access to it. I don't have to justify my testing recommendations to the government. Say so this is why I ran this test for this person. I just have to justify it to you as my patient. Right. And we often have good reason to do that. So, and then that kind of comes to, to like, if you just want to be proactive, like I just want to know in advance, I don't want to wait until I'm struggling. I want to know now, like, are any of these things up? Because if they're up, I want to deal with them. You know? Indeed. The bonus section on the male
0: fertility um like what what's like what is in there
1: what's essentially it's like module yeah it's a it's like essentially like a mini version of everything we talked about but for sperm health so the development of like the sperm cells and understanding the physiology of how sperm are made is a little bit simpler than understanding a menstrual cycle um which kind of speaks to just in general like unless something is very overtly, obviously wrong from a men's health or men's fertility standpoint. And I'll give an example, like, unless he's having like erectile dysfunction and cannot, you know, maintain an erection as an example, often we have no clue that sperm are not optimal, right. Until we've done a semen analysis and look under the microscope to be like, there are not very many sperm here. or They are not swimming in the right direction or they are the wrong shape and size. Uh, There's no symptoms of that. Whereas with a menstrual cycle, it's a little more obvious when something's up, right? We see symptoms of things being irregular or whatever. So yeah, it's kind of a a miniature version of, yeah, sort of what, how sperm are made and the development of sperm cells, understanding that physiology and then understanding sort of the nutritional and lifestyle factors for men, which spoiler alert are pretty similar for women, eating well and avoiding alcohol and recreational drugs and all that um, is beneficial for sperm health there's a few specific nuanced things that are going to be a little bit different. And then looking at, yeah, what like a fertility assessment looks like for men and for sperm. Right. And obviously there's going to be different hormones to look at and different metrics of health that we're looking to um, understand. So again, kind of understanding someone's health history and what things might be uh, problems or factors allows for an empowered conversation um, to have with someone's healthcare provider.
0: Amazing. And then finally I'm pregnant. Now what's <laughs> like, what, what sort of, is it again, kind of talking about like how nutrition changes or is it more just an extension of like, well, I, you, you tell me what's in there.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I mean, essentially that um, it is sort of about what to expect in that first um, window of opportunity Often, again, kind of thinking about our our healthcare system, what happens is like you get a positive pregnancy test, you might have like a visit maybe with your family doctor to do some confirmatory blood work, or maybe send you for an early ultrasound to confirm that like you're as far along as you think you are. So it's called like a dating ultrasound. But you don't actually have a visit with your primary care provider for your pregnancy until you're about 10 to 12 weeks pregnant. So that's usually two months after you've you feed on the stick and know you're pregnant. So there's a lot of like, there's a big gap in terms of like accessing information. And that's often when people have the most questions, right? Of like, can I eat this? Can I eat that? How do I, I'm feeling incredibly nauseous and exhausted and terrible. How am I supposed to manage this? So we don't all have like some family doctors are wonderful at supporting patients in this regard, but unless they're like kind of interested and focused in that like early prenatal care, they might not really be wonderful sources of information. And again, they might say, okay, you like can go see an OB, right? That's kind of the, the, an OBGYN is kind of the first referral from a doctor. So also helping people to understand like their other options. So things like midwifery care, um, as options for their primary care throughout their pregnancy, and then building in those other pieces of the care team, right? So understanding that there's definitely a lot of benefit to seeing a pelvic floor physiotherapist throughout your pregnancy, or maybe you need to see a chiropractor that has some training in prenatal care. Maybe you're working with a therapist to navigate stress and anxiety associated with a pregnancy, or you're working with a naturopath to ensure you're managing those undesirable pregnancy symptoms as naturally as possible, right? So kind of understanding how to build out your healthcare team and sort of what to expect in those early days before you're going to be able to connect with your midwife or your OB.
0: Amazing where can people learn more about your program and
1: where can they find you and follow you? Yes. Yes. So I'm pretty, I, I like to be active on, on the gram. So you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Shannon nd so D R Shannon N D. So D R Shannon N D as a naturopathic doctor. Um, Yeah. And I talk on there a lot about my personal uh, journey through fertility too. It's been actually really awesome to open up on social media about it. I was, I was terrified too at first, but, it's been a really great place to share um, and connect with people who are going through that as well. Um, and then, yeah, I have a free guide that people can download about um, understanding their ovulation, which is a really good, like, quick resource of like what the three things you can be tracking about your body to help you understand when you're ovulating and is really useful. So that can be found at shannonnd.ca/slash uh, ovulation guide. Um, and then all the information about my online program is also on my website and can be linked through my social media. So if you're interested, um, in that, I would love to connect. You can send me a DM. I can send you some more information. Um, the price as a little plug of our, our program Fertility Foundations is probably going to be going up soon. So, um, if you want to get in, you're interested in the program, I would encourage you to lock in now.
0: (laughs) Amazing. And in case you're like, I didn't catch all of those links. They will all yes. be in the show notes awesome. to make it very easy for you to access and connect with Shannon. And like, what an amazing offering to have. And, and this is like DIY, right? Like you're, it's a program, you sign in, you you go through it at your own pace. And it's not like- exactly,
1: Yeah. Okay. yeah. So it's like, you can take it at your own pace. So it's kind of, I kind of designed it to be like a module a week. Um, there's some downloadable resources. There's an amazing like meal plan and recipe guide. There's an ovulation tracking um, tool in there. Um, what else? There's like some guided meditations. It's a really awesome Some checklist. Uh, I'm really, yeah, I'm really excited about the program, but yes, all DIY you go in, you log in, you watch the videos, you can binge watch it if you want. <laughs> yep. um, and, and yeah, and you have access to it for life. So, um, you know, you might do it now and then and I wish this isn't the case for you, but if like in three years, you're going to try to get pregnant again, um, you know, and you're having some challenges, you can always revisit the program and remind yourself of, of what to go, what to look at.
0: Amazing. Wonderful. Shannon, thank you so much for taking like time to chat about this. Obviously we have many things we could chat about in the future, so <laughs> That may be a possibility. Uh, people can let us know if they've enjoyed this conversation, and we will definitely uh, revisit. Uh, but thank you for taking time to like educate, because like I've already learned a lot.
1: Awesome! Thank, thank you so much for having me. It was so fun to chat with you. I learned a lot from you too.
0: Thanks, and of course, we want to thank everybody who joins us on a weekly basis. You know, be sure to be subscribed because there's awesome conversations happening every single week, and you. Don't want to miss the opportunity to listen to them. So, subscribe and share, share this podcast out because, like, we're not getting this information in health class. And so, this is like really golden info. Like, the, you know, just it's a great foundation. So, share it out because there's people who may not be telling you that there's a problem. Right. And it's like, oh, Oh, you're trying to get pregnant. Here listen to this, right? Um or maybe they're not trying to get pregnant, or maybe they're not announcing it because there's something going on, right? So you by just you sharing it on your social platforms, those who want and need to hear the information will see it and will hopefully listen and so you could be changing somebody's life. So change a life and share the episode and then be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our other episodes. And we'll connect with everybody next time on the podcast. Bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about, the three different ways that you can work with pain and then at the end i actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience if you would like to access this free mini training you can go to courses.ecophysio.com forward slash mini training Or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode. At the end of the description, a link will be there for you to get the free mini training. Hope to connect with you there. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.